Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Starborn by Andrea Norton, Volume 2. Chapter 3, Snake Devil's Trail. Dalgard drew the waterproof covering back from his bow, making a cheerful job of it, preparatory to their pushing out to the sea once more. But he was as intent upon what Sasuri had to tell as he was on his occupation of the moment. But that's not even a hopper rumor, he was protesting, breaking into his companion's flow of thought. No, no but, but remember, remember to, to the, the runners, runners yesterday, yesterday is very far away. away. One, One night, night is like another. They, they do, do not, not reckon, reckon time as we do, nor lay up memories for future guidance. They left their native hunting grounds and are drifting south, and only a very great peril would lead the runners into such a break. It is against all their instincts. So, long ago, which may be months or weeks or just days, there came death out of the sea, and those who lived past its coming fled. Dalgard repeated the scanty information Sasori had won for them the night before by patient, hour-long coaxing. What kind of death? he asked. Sasori's great eyes, somber and little tired, met his. To us, there is only one kind of death to be greatly feared. But there are the snake devils, protested the colony scout. Yes, to be hunted down by snake devils is death. But it is a quick death, a death which can come to any living thing that is not swift or wary enough. For to the snake devils, all things that live and move are merely meat to fill the aching pit in their swollen bellies. But there were in the old days other deaths, far worse than what one meets under a snake devil's claws and fangs, and those are the deaths we fear. He was running the smooth haft of his spear back and forth through his fingers, as if testing the balance of the weapon, because the time was not far enough away when he would have to rely upon it. The others? Dalgard shaped the words with his lips as well as in his mind. Just so. Sasuri did not nod, but his thought was in complete agreement. But they haven't come before, not since the ship of my father's landed here. Dalgard protested, not against Sasuri's judgment, but against the whole idea. The merman got to his feet, sweeping his arm to indicate not only the cove where they now sheltered, but the continent behind it. Once they held all this, then they warred and killed, until but a handful lay in cover to lick their wounds and wait. It has been many seasons since they left that cover, but now they come again to loot their place of secrets. Perhaps in the time past they have forgotten much, so that now they must renew their knowledge. Dalgard stowed the bow in the bottom of the outrigger. I think we'd better go and see, he commented, so that we can report true tidings to our elders, something more than rumors learned from night runners. That is so. They paddled out to sea and turned the prow of the light craft north. The character of the land did not change. Cliffs still wall the coast, in some places rising sheer from the water, in others, 
broken by a footing of coarse beach. Only flying things were to be sighted over their rocky crowns. By midday, there was an abrupt alteration in the scene. A wide river cut through the heights and gave birth to a fan-shaped delta, thickly covered with vegetation. Half hidden by the riot of growing things was a building of the dome shape Dalgard knew so well. Its windowless, doorless surface reflected the sunlight with a glassy sheen, and to a casual inspection it was as untouched as it had been the day its masters had either died within it or left it for the last time, perhaps centuries before. This is one way into the Forbidden City, Sasuri announced. Once they stationed guards here. Dalgard had been about to suggest a closer inspection of the dome, but that remark made him hesitate. If it had been one of the fortifications rimming in a forbidden ground, there was more than an even chance that unwary invaders, even this long after, might stumble into some trap still working automatically. Do we go upriver? He left it to Sasuri, who had the traditions of his people to guide him, to make the decision. The merman looked at the dome. It was evident from his attitude that he had no wish to examine it more closely. They had machines which fought for them, and sometimes those machines still fight. This river is the natural entrance for an enemy. Therefore, it would have been well defended. Under the sun, the green reach of the delta had a most peaceful appearance. There was a family of duck dogs fishing from the beach, scooping their broad bills into the mud to locate water worms, and mothbirds danced in the air currents overhead. Yet Dalgard was ready to agree with his companion. Beware the easy way. They dipped their paddles deep and cut across the river current toward the cliffs to the north. Two days of steady coastwise traveling brought them to a great bay, and Dalgard gasped as the full sight of the port confronting them burst into view. Tiers of ledges had been cut and blasted into the native rock, extending from the sea back into the land in a series of giant steps. Each of them was covered with buildings, and here the ancient war had left its mark. The rock itself had been brought to a bubbling boil and sent in now-frozen rivers down that stairway in a half-dozen places, overwhelming all structures in its path and leaving crystallized streams to reflect the sun blindingly. So this is your secret city? asked Dalgard. Sosori shook his round head. This is but the sea entrance to the country, he corrected. Here struck the day of fire, and we need not fear the machines which doubtless lie in wait elsewhere. They beached the outrigger and hid it in the shell of one of the ruined buildings on the lowest level. Dalgard sent out a questing thought, hoping to contact a hopper or even a duck dog, but seemingly the ruins were bare of animal life, as was true in most of the other towns and cities he had explored in the past. The fauna of Astra was shy of any holding built by those others, no matter how long it may have been left to the wind and the cleansing rain. With difficulty and detours to avoid the rivers of once molten rock, they made their way slowly from ledge to ledge up the giant staircase. 
not stopping to explore any of the buildings as they passed. There was a taint of alien age about the city, which repelled Dalgard, and he was eager to get out of it into the clean countryside once more. Susuri sped on silent feet, his shoulders hunched, his distaste for the structures to be read in every line of his supple body. When they reached the top, Dalgard turned to gaze down to the restless sea. What a prospect. Perhaps those others had built thus for reasons of defense, but surely they too must have paused now and then to be proud of such a feat. It was the most impressive sight he had yet seen, and his report of it would be a worthy addition to the home port records. A road ran straight from the top of the stair, stabbing inland without taking any notice of the difficulties of the terrain, after the usual arrogant manner of the alien engineers. But Sasori did not follow it. Instead, he struck off to the left, avoiding the easy path, choosing to cross through tangles which had once been gardens or through open fields. They were well out of sight of the city before they flushed their first hopper, a full-grown adult with oddly pale fur. Instead of displaying the usual fearless interest in strangers, the animal took one swift look at them and fled as if a snake devil had snorted at its thumping heels. And Dalgard received a sharp impression of terror, as if the hopper saw in him some frightening menace. What in the heck? Honestly astounded, he looked to Sasori for enlightenment. The hoppers could be pests. They stole any small bright object which roused their interest, but they could also be persuaded to trade, and they usually had no fear of either colonist or merman. Sasuri's furred face might not convey much emotion, but by all the signs Dalgard could read, he knew that the merman was as startled as he was by the strange behavior of the grass dweller. He is, he is afraid, afraid of those who walked erect, as we do. Those who walk erect? Dalgard was quick to interpret that. He knew that those others were biped, quasi-human in form, closer in physical appearance to the colonists than to the mermen, and since none of Dalgard's people had penetrated this far to the north, nor had the mermen invaded this taboo territory until Susuri had agreed to come, that left only the aliens, those strange people whom the colonists feared without knowing why they feared them, whom the mermen hated with a hatred which had not lessened with the years of freedom. The faint rumor carried by the migrating runners must be true, for here was a hopper afraid of bipeds, and it must have been recently provided with a reason for such fear, since hopper memories were very short, and such terror would have faded from its mind in the matter of weeks. Sasori halted in a patch of grass that reached to his waist belt. It is best to wait until the hours of dark. But Dalgard could not agree. Maybe better for you with your night sight, he objected, but I do not have your eyes in my head. Sasori had to admit the justice of that. He could travel under the moonless sky as sure-footed as under broad daylight, but to guide a blundering Dalgard through unknown country was not practical. However, they could take to cover, and they did that as speedily as possible, using a zigzag tactic that delayed their advance but took them from one bit of protecting brush or grove of trees to the next, keeping to the fields well away from the road. They camped that night without fire in a pocket near a spring. 
and while Dalgard was alert to all about them, he knew that Sasori's mind was questing in a far wider circle, trying to contact a hopper, a runner, any animal that could answer in part the inquiries they had. When Dalgard could no longer hold open weary eyes, his last waking memory was that of his companion, sitting statue still, his spear across his knees, his head leaning a trifle forward as if what he was listening to was as vocal as the hum of the night insects. When the colony scout roused in the morning, his companion was stretched full length on the other side of the spring, but his head came up as Dalgard moved. We may go forward without fear, he shaped the assurance. What has troubled this land has gone. A long time ago? Dalgard was not surprised at Sasori's negative answer. Within days, they have been here, but they have gone once more. It will be wise for us to learn what they wanted here. Have they come to establish a base here again? Dalgard brought into the open the one threat that had hung over his own clan since they first learned that a few of those others still lived, even if overseas. If that is their plan, they have not yet done it. Sasori rolled over onto his back and stretched. He had lost that tenseness of a hound in leash that had marked him the night before. This is one of their secret places, holding much of their knowledge. They may yet return here on a quest for that learning. All at once, Dalgard was conscious of a sense of urgency. Suppose that what Sasori suggested was the truth, that those others were attempting to recover the skills that had brought on the devastating war that had turned this whole eastern continent into a wilderness. Equipped with even a few crumbs of such discoveries, they would be enemies against which the Terran colonists could not hope to stand. The few weapons their outlaw ancestors had brought with them on their desperate flight to the stars were long since useless, and they had had no way of duplicating them. Since childhood, Dalgard had seen no arms except the bows and the sword knives carried by all venturing away from Homeport, and what use would a bow or a foot or two of sharpened metal be against things that could kill from a distance or turn rock itself into a flowing molten river? He was impatient to move on, to reach this city of forgotten knowledge that Sasori was sure lay before them. Perhaps the colonists could draw upon what was stored there as well as those others could. And then he remembered, not only remembered, but was corrected by Sasori. Think, Think not, not of, of taking, taking their, their weapons, weapons into your hands. Sasori did not look up as he gave that warning. Long, Long ago, your father's fathers knew that the knowledge of those others were not for their taking. A dimly remembered story, a warning impressed upon him during his first guided trips into the ruins near Homeport, flashed into Dalgard's mind. Yes, he knew that some things had been forbidden to his kind. For one, it was best not to examine too closely the bands of colored patterns that served those others as a means of written record. Tapes of the aliens' records had been found and stored at Homeport, but not one of the colonists had ventured to try to break the color code and learn what lay locked in those bands. Once long ago, such an experiment had led to the brink of disaster, 
and such delvings were now considered too dangerous to be allowed. But there was no harm in visiting the city, and certainly he must make some report to the council about what might be taking place there, especially if those others were in residence or visited the site. Sosori still kept to the fields, avoiding the highway, until mid-morning, and then he made an abrupt turn and brought them out onto the soil-drifted surface of the road. The land here was seemingly deserted. No moth-birds performed their air ballets overhead, and they did not see a single hopper. That is, they did not until the road dipped before them and they started down into a cupped hollow filled with buildings. The river whose delta they had earlier seen made a half-loop about the city, lacing it in, and here there were no signs of the warfare that had ruined the port. But in the middle of the road lay a bloody bunch of fur and splintered bone, insects busy about it. Sasori used the point of his spear to straighten out the small corpse, displaying its headlessness. And before they reached the outer buildings of the city, they found four more hoppers, mangled, all of them. Well, it wasn't a snake devil, Dalgard deduced. As far as he knew, only the huge reptiles or their smaller flying dragon cousins preyed upon the animals. But a snake devil would have left no remains of anything as small as a hopper, one mouthful that could not satisfy its gnawing hunger. And a flying dragon would have picked the bones clean. It was them. Sasuri's reply was clipped. They hunt for sport. Dalgard felt a little sick. To his mind, hoppers were to be treated with friendship. Only against the snake devils and the flying dragons were the colonists ever at war. No wonder that hopper had run from them back on the plain during yesterday's journey. The buildings before them were not the rounded domes of the isolated farms, but a series of upward-pointing shafts. They walked through a tall gap which must have supported a now-disappeared barrier gate, and their passing was signaled by a whispering sound as they shuffled through the loose sand and soil drifted there in a miniature dune. The city was in a better state of preservation than any Dalgard had previously visited but he had no desire to enter any of the gaping doorways. It was as if the city rejected him and his kind, as if to the past that brooded here he was no more than a curious hopper or a fluttering short-lived moth-bird, old, old and with wisdom hidden within it. He caught the trail of thought from Susuri, and he was certain that the merman was no more at ease here than he was. As the street they followed brought them into an open space surrounded by more imposing buildings, they made another discovery that blotted out all the thoughts of forbidden knowledge and awakened them to a more normal and everyday danger. A fountain, which no longer played but gave birth to a crooked stream of water, was in the center, and in the muddy verge of the stream pressed deep was the fresh track of a snake devil, almost full-grown, Dalgard estimated, measuring the print with his fingers. Sosori pivoted slowly, studying the circle of the buildings around them. Looks like it's been an hour, maybe two. Dalgard gave a hunter's verdict on the age of the print. He, too, eyed those buildings. To meet a snake devil in the open was one thing. To play hide-and-seek with the cunning monster in a warren such as this was something else again. 
He hoped that the reptile had been heading for the open, but he doubted it. This mass of buildings would provide just the type of shelter that would appeal to it for its lair, and snake devils did not den alone. Try by the river, was Sasori's advice. Like Dalgard, he accepted the necessity of the chase. No intelligent creature ever lost the chance to kill a snake devil when fortune offered it, and he and the scout had hunted together on such trails before. Now they slipped into familiar roles from long practice. They took a route which should have led them down to the river, and within a matter of yards came across evidence that the merman had guessed correctly. A second claw print was pressed deeply in a patch of drifted soil. Here the buildings were of a new type, windowless, perhaps storehouses. But what pleased Dalgard most was the fact that most of them showed tightly closed doors. There was no chance for their prey to lurk and wait. We, we should, should smell, smell it. it. Sasori picked that worry out of the scout's mind and had a ready answer for it. Sure, they should smell the lair. Nothing could cloak the horrible odor of a snake devil's home. Dalgard sniffed vigorously as he padded through. Though odd smells clung to the strange buildings, none of them were actively obnoxious. Yet. The river. There was the river at the end of the way they had been following, a way which ended in a wharf built out over the oily flow of water. Blank walls were on either side. If the snake devil had come this way, he would find no hiding place. Across the river. Dalgard gave a resigned grunt. For some reason, he disliked the thought of swimming that stream, of having his skin bathed by the turgid water with its brown sheen. There is no need to swim. Dalgard's gaze followed Sasori's pointing finger. But what he saw, bobbing up and down, pulled a little downstream by the current, did not particularly reassure him. It was manifestly a boat, but the form was as alien as the city around them. Chapter 4 Civilization Rafe surveyed the wide sweep of prairie, where dawn gave a gray tinge to soften the distance and mark the rounded billows of the epirippling grass. He tried to analyze what it was about this world that made it seem so untouched, so fresh and new. There were large sections of his own terra that had been abandoned after the big burn-off and the atomic wars, or later after the counter-revolution that had defeated the Empire of Pax, during which mankind had slipped far back on the road to civilization. But he had never experienced the same feeling when he had ventured into those wildernesses. Almost he could believe that the records Hobart had showed him were false, that this world had never known intelligent life herding together in cities. He walked slowly down the ramp, drawing deep breaths of the crisp air. The day would grow warmer with the rising sun, but now it was just the sort of morning that led him to be glad he was alive and young. Maybe part of it was because he was free of the ship, and at last not just excess baggage, but a man with a definite job before him. Spacemen tended to be young, but until this moment, Rafe had never felt the real careless freedom of youth. Now he was moved by a desire to disobey orders, to take the flitter up by himself and head off into the blue of the brightening sky for more than just a test flight. Not to explore Hobart City, but to cruise over the vast sea of grass and find out its wonders for himself. 
But the discipline that had shaped him almost since birth sent him now to check the flyer and wait, inwardly impatient, for Hobart, Lablet, and Sariki, the contact to join him. The wait was not a long one since the three others, with equipment hung about, tramped down the ramp as Rafe settled himself behind the control board of the flyer. He triggered the shield that snapped over them for a windbreak and brought the flitter up into the spreading color of the morning. Beside him, Hobart pressed the button of the automatic recorder, and in the seat behind, Sariki had the headset of the comm clamped over his ears. They were not only making a record of their trip, they were continuing in constant communication with the ship, now already a silver pencil far to the rear. It was some two hours later that they discovered what was the one reason for the isolation of the district in which the RS-10 had set down. Rolling foothills beneath them, and miles ahead, the white-capped peaks of a mountain range made a broken outline against the turquoise sky. The broken lands would be a formidable barrier for any foot travelers. There were no easy roads through that series of sharp lifts and narrow valleys, and one stream they followed for a short space descended from the heights in spectacular falls. Twice they skimmed thick growths of trees so tightly packed that from the air they resembled a matted carpet of green-blue, and to cut through such a forest would be an impossible task. The four in the flitter seldom spoke. Rafe kept his attention on the controls. Sudden currents of air were tricky here, and he had to be constantly alert to hold the small flyer on an even keel. His glimpses of what lay below were only snatched ones. At last it was necessary to zoom far above the vegetation of the lower slopes, to reach an altitude safe enough to clear the peaks ahead. Since the air supply within the windshield was constant, they did not fear lack of oxygen. But Rafe was privately convinced, as they soared, that the range might well compare in height with those Asian mountains that dominated all the upflung regions of his native world. When they were over the sharp points of that chain, disaster almost overtook them. A freakish air current caught the flitter as if in a giant hand, and Rafe fought for control as they lost altitude past the margin of safety. Had he not allowed for just such a happening, they might have been smashed against one of the rock tips over which they skimmed to precarious safety. Rafe, his mouth dry, his hands sweating on the controls, took them up, higher than was necessary, to coast above the last of that rocky spine to see below the beginnings of the downslopes leading to the plains the range cut in half. He heard Hobart draw a hissing breath. That was a close call. Lablet's precise lecturer's voice cut through the drone of the motor. Yeah, Sariki echoed. Look like we might be sandwich meat for a while there. The kid knows his stuff after all. Rafe grinned a little sourly, but he did not answer that. He ought to know his trade. Why else would he be along? They were each specialists in one or two fields, but he had good sense enough to keep his mouth shut. That way, the less one had to regret minutes or hours later. The land on the south side of the mountains was different in character to the wild northern plains. Fields! It did not require that identification from Lablet to point out what they had already seen. The section below was artificially divided into long, narrow strips, but the vegetation growing on those strips 
was no different from the northern green they had seen about the spacer. Not cultivated now, the scientist amended his first report. It's reverting to grassland. Rafe brought the flitter closer to the ground so that when a dome structure arose out of a tangle of overgrown shrubs and trees, they were not more than 50 feet above it. There was no sign of life about the dwelling, if dwelling it was, and the unkempt straggle of growing things suggested it had been left to itself through more than one season. Lablet wanted to sit down and explore, but the captain was intent upon reaching the city. A solitary farm was of little value compared to what they might learn from a metropolis, so rather to Rafe's relief, he was ordered on. He could not have explained why he shrank from such an investigation. Where earlier that morning he had wanted to take the flitter and go off by himself to explore the world that seemed so bright and new, now he was glad that he was only the pilot of the flyer and that the others were not only in his company but ready to make the decisions. He had a queer distaste for the countryside, a disinclination to land near that dome. Beyond the first of the deserted farms, they came to the highway, and since the buckled and half-buried roadway ran south, Hobart suggested they use it as a visible guide. More isolated dome homes showed in the course of an hour, and their fields were easy to map from the air, but nowhere did the Terrans see any indication that those fields were in use, nor were there any signs of animal or bird life. The weird desolation of the landscape began to work its spell upon the men in the flitter. There was something unnatural about this country, and with every mile the flyer checked off, Rafe longed to be heading in the opposite direction. The domes grew closer together, made a cluster at crossroads, and gathered into a town in which all the buildings were the same shape and size, like the cells of a wasp nest. Rafe wondered if those who had built them had not been humanoid at all, but perhaps insects with a hive mind. And because that thought was unpleasant, he resolutely turned his attention to the machine he piloted. They passed over four such towns, all marking intersections of roads running east and west, north and south, with precise exactness. The sun was at noon or a little past that mark when Captain Hobart gave the order to set down so that they could break out rations and eat. Rafe brought the flitter down on the cracked surface of the road, mistrusting what might lie in the field grass. They got out and walked for a space along the pavement, which had once been smooth. This was designed for high-powered traffic. That was from Lablet. He had gone down on one knee and was tracing a finger along the substance. Pretty straight, Sariki squinted against the sun. Nothing stopped on them, did it? We want a road here and we'll get it. That sort of thing. They must have been master engineers. To Rafe, the straight highways suggested something else. Master engineering, certainly, but a ruthlessness, too, as if the builders refused to accept any modifications of their original plans from nature, and that they might be as arrogant and self-assured in other ways. He did not admire this relic of civilization. In fact, it added to his vague uneasiness. The land was so still, under the whisper of the wind, he discovered that he was listening, listening for the buzz of an insect, the squeak of some grass-dweller, anything that might mean that there was life about them. But as he chewed on the ration concentrate 
and drank sparingly from his canteen, Rafe continued to listen, without any result. Hobart and Lablet were engrossed in speculation about what might lie ahead. Sariki had gone back to the flitter to make his report to the ship. The pilot sat where he was, content to be forgotten, but eager to see an animal peering at him from cover, a bird winging through the air. We don't hit it by nightfall, and we can't be that far away. I'll stay out and try tomorrow. That was Hobart. And since he was captain, what he said was probably what they would do. Rafe shied away from the thought of spending the night in this haunted land. Though on the other hand, he would be utterly opposed to lifting the flitter over those mountains again except in broad daylight. But the problem did not arise, for they found their city in the mid-afternoon, the road bringing them straight to an amazing collection of buildings, which appeared doubly alien to their eyes, since it did not include any of the low domes they had seen heretofore. There were towers of needle slimness, solid blocks of almost windowless masonry looking twice as bulky beside those same towers, archways stringing at dizzying heights above the ground from one skyscraper to the next. And here time and nature had been at work. Some of the towers were broken off. A causeway displayed a gap. Once it had been a breathtaking feat of engineering, far more impressive than the highway, and now it was a collapsing ruin. But before they had time to take it all in, Sariki gave an exclamation. Something coming through on our wave band, sir. He leaned forward to dig fingers into Hobart's shoulder. Message of some kind, I'd swear to it. Hobart snapped into action. Kirby, set down. There. His choice of a landing place was the flat top of a nearby building, one which stood a little apart from the neighbors and, as Rafe could see, was not overlooked except by a ruined tower. He circled the flitter. The machine had been specially designed to land and take off in confined spaces, and he knew all there was possible to learn about its handling on his home world, but he had never tried to bring it down on a roof, and he was very sure that now he had no margin for error left to him, not with Hobart breathing impatiently beside him. His hands moving as if, as the pilot of a spacer, he could well take over the controls here. Rafe circled twice, eyeing the surface of the roof in search of any break that could mean a crack-up at landing. And then, though he refused to be hurried by the urgency of the men with him, he came in, cutting speed and bringing them down with only a slight jar. Hobart twisted around to face Sariki. Are you still getting it? The other, cupping his earphones to his head with his hands, nodded. Give me a minute or two, he told him. I'll try to get it fixed. They're excited about something, the way this jabber-jabbering is coming through. They are excited about us, Rafe thought. The ruined tower topped them to the south, and to the east and west there were buildings as high as the one they were perched upon, but the town he had seen as he maneuvered for a landing had held no signs of life. Around them were only signs of decay. Lablack got out of the flitter and walked to the edge of the roof, leaning against the parapet to focus his vision glasses on what lay below. After a moment, Rafe followed his example. Silence and desolation. Windows like eye pits and bone-picked skulls. There were even some small patches of vegetation rooted 
and growing in pockets of erosion that had been carved into the wall. To the pilot's uninformed eyes, the city looked wholly dead. I got it! Sariki's exultant cry brought them back to the flitter. As if his body was the indicator, he had pivoted until his outstretched hand pointed southwest. About a quarter of a mile that way! They shielded their eyes against the westering sun. A block of solid masonry loomed high in the sky, dwarfing not only the building they were standing on, but all the towers around it. Its imposing lines made clear its one-time importance. It looks like a palace, mused Lablet, or a capital. I would say it was just about in the heart of the city. He dropped his glasses to swing on their cord, his eyes glistening as he spoke directly to Rafe. Can you set us down on that? The pilot measured the curving roof of the structure. A crazy fool might try to make a landing there, but he was not a crazy fool. Not on that roof. He spoke with decision. To his relief, the captain confirmed his verdict with a slow nod. Better find out more first. Hobart could be cautious when he wanted to be. Are they still broadcasting, Sariki? The Comtech had stripped the earphones from his head and was rubbing one ear. Are they? he exploded. I think you could hear them clear over there, sir. And they could. The gabble-gabble, which bore no resemblance to any language Terra knew, boiled out of the headphones. My, my, someone is excited, Lablack commented in his usual mild tone. Maybe they've discovered us. Hobart's hand went to the weapon at his belt. We must make peaceful contact here, if we can. Lablet took off his helmet and ran his fingers through the scrappy, ginger and gray fringe receding from his forehead. Yes, contact will be necessary, he said thoughtfully. Well, he was supposed to be their expert on that. Rafe watched the older man with something akin to amusement. The pilot had a suspicion that none of the other three, Lablet included, was in any great hurry to push through contact with unknown aliens. It was a case of dancing along on shore before having to plunge into the chill of the autumn sea waves. Terrans had explored their own solar system, and they had speculated learnedly for generations on the problem of intelligent life forms. There had been all kinds of reports by experts and would-be experts. But the stark fact remained that heretofore, mankind, as born on the third planet of Saul, had not encountered intelligent alien life. And just how far did speculations, reports, and arguments go when one was faced with a problem to be solved practically and speedily? Rafe's own solution would have been to proceed with caution, and yet more caution. Under his technical training, he had far more imagination than any of his officers had ever realized. And now he was certain that the best course of action was swift retreat until they knew more about what they faced. But in the end, the decision was taken out of their hands. A muffled exclamation from Lablet brought them all around to see the distant, curving roof crack wide open. From the shadows within, a flyer spiraled up into the late afternoon sky. Rafe reached the flitter in two leaps. Without orders, he had the spray gun ready for action, on point and aimed at the bobbing machine heading toward them. From the earphones Sariki had left on the seat, the gabble had risen to a screech. 
and one part of Rafe's brain noted that the sounds were repetitious. Was an order to surrender being broadcast? His thumb was firm on the firing button of the gun, and he was about to send a warning burst to the right of the alien when an order from Hobart stopped him cold. Take it easy, Kirby. Sariki said something about a gun-happy flitter pilot, but Rafe noted with bleak eyes the Comtech kept his own hand close to his belt arm. Only Lablet stood watching the oncoming alien ship with placidity. But then, as Rafe had learned through the long voyage of the spacer, a period of time which had left few character traits of any of the crew hidden from their fellows, the xenobiologist was a fatalist and strictly averse to personal combat. The pilot did not leave his seat at the gun, but within seconds he knew they had lost the initial advantage. As the tongue-shaped stranger thrust at them and then swept on to glide above their heads so that the weird shadow of the ship licked them from light to dark and then light again, Rafe was certain that his superiors had made the wrong decision. They should have left the city as soon as they had picked up those signals, if they could have gone then. He studied the other flyer. Its lines suggested speed as well as mobility, and he began to doubt if they could have escaped with that craft trailing after them. Well, what could they do now? The alien flyer could not land here, not without coming down flat upon the flitter. Maybe it would cruise overhead as a warning threat until the city dwellers were able to reach the Terrans in some other manner. Tense, the four spacemen stood watching the graceful movements of the flyer. There were no visible portholes or openings anywhere along its ovoid sides. It might be a robot-controlled ship. It might be anything, Rafe thought, even a bomb of sorts. If it were being flown by some human or non-human flyer, he was a masterful pilot. I don't understand. Sariki moved impatiently. They're just shuttling around up there. What do we do now? Lablet turned his head. He was smiling faintly. We wait. I should imagine it takes time to climb 20 flights of stairs, if they have stairs, he told the Comtech. Sariki's attention fell from the flyer hovering over their heads to the surface of the roof. Rafe had already looked that over without seeing any opening but he did not doubt the truth of Lablet's surmise. Sooner or later, the aliens were going to reappear, and it did not greatly matter to the Maroon Terrans whether they would drop from the sky or rise from below. <laughs>